So do I have what it takes to succeed at this sport? Am I going to be able to gather the skills that I need in order to succeed and keep going? Do I have the, the, the mental strength to be able to push through eight or 10 rounds in a fight? I don't know. You know, some days I feel like I do and some days I feel like I don't. And that's been that's been a pretty common battle in my head throughout my entire career in sports. Like I'm confident I'm the best I can do it. And then some days I'm like, can I do it? This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of Mindset RX and your host. And I believe mindset mastery is found in the middle ground between oppositional beliefs. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay, that's part of the deal. It's how I respond to it. Today on the Limitless Athlete Podcast, you'll be listening to what I think is a fascinating conversation between 25 times powerlifting world record holder Steffi Cohen and myself. Steffi is just an incredible human being. She's one of those rare breeds who seemingly excels in every area of her life, but she's open in this conversation in a way that sometimes you don't get with those kind of people. So I found this just fascinating. Steffi is a 25 times world record holder, um, like I said, and the first woman in history in, in the history of the sport to deadlift 4.4 times her body weight. She recently took a break from the platform and transitioned to professional boxing. She is a doctor of physical therapy and exercise physiologist who is passionate about education and bringing her an audience like a, a no BS evidence view scientifically based um trackable all things and her company hybrid performance method is something she founded she's also the co-author of back in motion with dr ian kaplan and co-host of the hybrid unlimited podcast the main topic of this conversation is around how a beneficial mindset is found between two seemingly oppositional factors and it's usually right in the middle of that. We talk around like hard work and self-compassion, being professional but also being relaxed enough to perform your best, masculinity and femininity, um, force and passivity, recovery and work like we we dive into that balance like the theme that comes up time and time again is like find that balance between the two opposite oppositional forces and you'll find your best mindset it's a balancing act that we must seek to maintain it's a very kind of Taoist view we also touch on self-doubt and how to deal with it that's a big topic in this um, trusting the process trusting your coaches um, those moments of discovery which are very uncomfortable um, how she never loved powerlifting and femininity like maintaining femininity this is the bit that i found most interesting it's kind of the last 20 minutes um, but maintaining femininity in a quote-unquote masculine sport and the identity challenges around that and how steffi's struggled with it but also made headway in it um so that is the show. Let's get on with it. So, Steffi, welcome to the show. It's um, a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So let's start where we start with, I suppose, everyone. Um, tell me about who raised you. Who raised me? Yeah. Um, I was raised by both my parents, was lucky to have them both at home. Um, it was an interesting family dynamic. I grew up in Venezuela, Caracas, Venezuela, in a very traditional Jewish, Hispanic family. My dad's originally from Morocco. My mom's family is from Romania. Mm -hmm. um, my dad was very much into sports. He was kind of the driving force behind me pursuing sports as a career. He played professional soccer and he kind of wanted me to follow his footsteps. So he was very supportive of, of me doing whatever I wanted to do. My mom didn't really understand sports. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. she, she, she was more traditional in that she wanted me to do something more quote unquote feminine, 
but obviously still was extremely supportive. Um, and then by the time I was 18, I was out of the house. My mom, at that point, my parents were separated. My mom was the one that kind of encouraged me to, to go to, to college and get a real education and actually move out of Venezuela to look for better opportunities. My dad wanted me to stay in Venezuela and work with slash for him, his business. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that my mom kind of had that vision because a few years after I left home, after I left Venezuela, shit really hit the fan back home, just like socially, economically, in every in every way. So I was glad that I was out of the country and pursuing better, bigger and better things here. Yeah, that must have been a real change for you. Yeah, it was massive. I mean, I initially moved to San Diego, California. So it was pretty big culture shock in terms of honestly everything like if understanding things as simple as like understanding comedy humor you know how how people interact with one another what people find funny what they don't um cultural cultural boundaries that you're maybe not aware of because you grew up in a completely different environment completely different cult, eh, country obviously the language, um, testing methods for school. You know, we didn't, I didn't know what a Scantron for multiple choice was until I was in college, you know? So yeah, it was just a lot of things, different things to, to get used to. Yeah. Yeah. Before you moved to the U S um, what kind of sport were you doing? Or were you, were you active? Like what was, what was your childhood like in that regard? Yeah, so I, I played professional soccer. I started playing soccer when I was seven years old, and I got into the national team by the time I was 14. Uh, and I played until I was 18 for the national team. And then I came to San Diego initially with a soccer scholarship to play for San Diego State. Ended up transferring over to University of Miami, uh, tried out for the team here, and then didn't end up continuing to play. Was there anyone who was like a big influence in forming your mentality? Like you obviously mentioned your dad obviously had the sporting kind of um, correlation to what you were doing. Um, your mum seemed to be in like kind of interested in a, a different side of life. Um, was there anyone who was like a mentor in this regard? Um, I mean, I, I had a lot of uh, like strong positive influences in my life as far as mentality and professionalism, real professional career goes. Uh, my sister was one of them, you know, she, from the time she was 18 or no, not 18, she graduated college at what, 2021, she graduated early. She worked for one of the biggest companies in Venezuela. She worked for Procter and Gamble in marketing, and she was climbing the corporate ladder, you know, and it's, it's unusual in, in Jewish Hispanic families for a woman to be so career oriented and so driven, but I had that to kind of like, um, mimic and kind of follow those footsteps you know a, a female who had more ambition and more and more or more goals than just and not just I mean I guess for some people it's enough so I, I don't want anybody to, to feel insulted but she had she had career goals that were outside of building a family and having kids which I really respected and and um, you know she ha obviously had to jump through a lot of a lot of hoops to to get there and then obviously my my grandparents being that they were world war ii uh not survivors but they escaped world war ii they pretty much walked from romania all the way to israel and then from israel they uh were recruited to start a high school in venezuela they you know moved there started high school learned their language and and were able to build a pretty profitable business obviously those are um, all role models that I grew up having. That, yeah. What that kind of stuff did your grand? What kind of uh, stuff did your grandparents teach you? So did they teach me? Yeah. What were they like? Um, man, they were they were tough. They were they had that survivalist mentality. Um, you know, kind of try to be unaffected by life. Like anytime that life throws you a curveball, just like put your pants back up and tighten them even tighter. Um, my grandma, especially as a woman, she was, you know, anything that had to do with like 
boys or love or things like that. She would always kind of encourage me to be independent emotionally and financially, you know, not to depend on anybody, not to let, not to let my emotions and, and what guys are doing to me or at me affect me as a person or, or mess up with my identity or my self-worth. She seems great. Yeah, they were. Yeah, it seemed really cool. Um, I'm trying to like put together uh, an idea of like where your mindset comes from. And there's some that's obviously you construct yourself and there's some that is genetic. And then there's others that are how you're nurtured at such a young age. And um, obviously sport came into that in, in soccer or football. Um, so that's, that's really cool. Um, did you have any coaches who stood out to you? Yeah, I, I always say that my coaches have been my most meaningful relationships because I've, I don't know, I mean, from, from the time I was a young kid, I've always had, my dream has always been to be a professional athlete. Mm. Sports have always been my passion. So anybody who's, who's helped me or who's believed in me and has kind of helped propel my career athletically, obviously has a, holds a really special place in my heart in my life. So my soccer coach, my first soccer coach, his name's Oliver, obviously, you know, played a massive role in, in, in my development as an athlete at a young age. Um, it's interesting because he was one of those coaches that gives you a lot of tough love. I was always benched. So I started playing when I was seven and I was benched until the time I was 10 or 11. You know, I was not one of the talented, naturally talented at soccer type of uh, athletes. I had had really worked for earning, earning a spot on the team, earning, uh, earning the, 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 the opportunity to be team captain and all of those things. So, and it was through tough love, you know, he obviously was encouraging cause I didn't quit, but at the same time, um, you know, he didn't make it easy for me to get there. And then my Olympic weightlifting coach, he was awesome. His name's Camilo Garcia. He found me at a CrossFit gym and pretty much said that I had the aptitudes to, to be an Olympian and that he wanted to coach me. And he coached me for free every single day for about six years. Cool. Another really important uh, coach. And, and now my, my boxing coaches that are, have been amazing. Yeah. It's interesting that like, whenever I speak to athletes in this capacity, I always talk about, or ask, ask them and including you about coaches because they like, they form such an instrumental part of our relationship and it's like so much that like coaching is subliminal, but everyone who I've spoken to about this talks about that tough love piece. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like as coaches, I think we want to be kind of liked, but that doesn't really make our athletes into the people they have the potential to be. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, you need, but they, I think that a good coach knows when to turn that on and off. You know, they, they know when you, when you need some encouragement and maybe like a, a softer, more fatherly side. Um, and they also remember? know when you need, yeah. when you need to be like yelled at. Yeah. Just do, do you remember any times where you're like, oh shit, that isn't fair. Like, that's not like, I, I'm really like hurt by that. And that's, uh, I, I don't feel like that's a, a fair thing to happen to me, but you look back at it and you think, okay, that was, that, that was what I needed at the time. Um, man, no, to be honest, I've, I've always kind of blindly trusted my coaches and just thought that whatever decision it is that they were making, it was the best one for me. Like even goes as far as, for example, I had a sparring session recently and last minute my coach didn't show up. Like he just didn't come. And I was like, there's no chance that that's an accident. Like there's no, that's not accidental. Like there's a reason why he didn't show up. And I didn't get upset or anything. I think most people would have gotten upset if their coach didn't show up for sparring four or five weeks before a fight, you know, but we, he spoke to me a couple of weeks later and was like, yeah, I mean, that was a test. You know, you, you should be able to perform whether I'm there or I'm not because boxing conditions are infinitely changing are constantly changing. So you should be able to adapt to whatever, you know, what if I miss my flight, I can't make it to your fight or you, you know, you're going to be able to fight or you're going to, go cry in a corner, you know? So I just always kind of blind, blindly trusted that whatever it is that they're doing or saying is with my best interest in mind. Yeah. That's, um, 
yeah, it takes a lot of trust on your and faith from you. Like, oh, and I know this person. I, I, I think they've got the, my best interest in heart. But there's no other way. Like, if you don't fully commit and trust the plan that they have for you, then it's definitely not going to work. You know, it might not work, but if you don't trust it fully, then it definitely isn't going to work. Like, there has to be a certain level of, like, acceptance and, like, letting go of whatever your preconceived notions of training philosophies are and just let them do their job you know there's a reason why they're the coach and you're the athlete yeah it's it's also trusting the process as a whole it's like this this training cycle is going to work like this technique is, is focusing on technique as opposed to just going heavy is is going to work like all these things like we we like to create doubt we like to um not trust the process as, as much as possible for some reason we like to maintain control but giving up control is a difficult thing to do but something you need to do to get where you want to get to a hundred percent okay were there any well i'm guessing there were many many mindset struggles along the way but when you were talking about your youth still or talking about up until you came over to the us were there any kind of distinct mindset challenges that you had um I think the one that's been kind of a constant one throughout the years has been that challenge between or that dichotomy between being confident in your abilities and and doubting that you have what it takes to succeed. You know, I have always kind of gone back and forth with that. And it's at points it could be like the doubt can be deafening. You know, you're like, you know, am I especially now when I'm starting something new, you know, am I really, am I, can I be a good, can I be one of the best fighters? Cause it's, my goal is not to be a good fighter. My, my goal is to be one of the best, if not the best. So do I have what it takes to succeed at this sport? Am I going to be able to gather the skills that I need in order to succeed and keep going? Do I have the, the, the mental strength to be able to push through eight or 10 rounds in a fight. I don't know. You know, some days I feel like I do. And some days I feel like I don't. And that's been, that's been a pretty common battle in my head throughout my entire career in sports. Like I'm confident I'm the best I can do it. And then some days I'm like, can I do it? You know, I don't know. And that's where, that's where the coaches come in. That's why they, that's why they have such an, uh, an important role in our development as athletes or my development as an athlete. It's because they believe in me and they believe in you more than you believe in yourself. So at times where you're doubting yourself more than ever, they're that voice in your head that says, keep going, you know, what keep does going, that, get to it. there's a plan. What's that self-doubt sound like in, in your mind? Um, Yeah, sometimes it's just like, you suck. You were really uncoordinated today. Um, everybody has so much more experience over you. They've been fighting for their whole life. You just picked it up at 28. There's no way you can compete with them. Um, you have six years of physiology against you that you've been pretty much working on the complete end, opposite end of the spectrum. Um, how are you going to counter that? Um, yeah, you... Or, what's the saying about old dogs can't teach new tricks to old dogs yeah 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 all those things okay so the reason why i asked you that isn't just to make you feel a bit uncomfortable um but it's because i think it's important that people listen to this will go oh okay like if you struggle with this and you hear those kind of voices then maybe it's okay for me to hear that as well maybe i'm not just fucked because i can't because I, I get that kind of thought. Um, but what's important is firstly, you've surrounded yourself in a community and an environment that, that helps you to shift that and supports you. But secondly, I'm going to guess you've got a relationship with it that you, that is somewhat productive. So like when you hear that self-talk, when you hear those, that self-doubt, self-criticism, what strategies do you have? Um, sometimes I talk to people for close friends. Uh, sometimes I feel like I actually need to do something about it. So I reach out to somebody that has more experience or that can help me like a sports psychologist, or for example, lately I've been struggling a bit with 
my breathing and my conditioning. So I reached out to an exercise physiologist to Andy Galpin for help, like doing labs and, and just making sure that like systemically everything's fine. Just trying to like cross things off of my doubt checklist to see how many things I can eliminate so that I can continue pushing forward. Yeah. That's a super practical way of going about it. Like everything that I've, I've, I've learned about you and prep for this, you're fascinated by the mechanism behind things, I think, and the, the system and why things work. And if someone just said, do this, I don't think you'd follow it. But if they said, okay, this is why I think you understand it. And you go, okay, that can settle the doubt. Absolutely. I think that, you know, doubts have two parts. You have the, the subjective part, that's your psychology, right? It's just inherently, it's, it's, humans have that and then there's the objective part of doubts where it's like maybe there actually maybe there actually is something lacking in your training or or your your skill set that you haven't been able to master yet that, that actually requires you to pay more attention to right so sometimes is is all in your head and sometimes you actually should be doubtful and you should be you should be looking more into it yeah, that's exactly why I'm fascinated by your perspective on this because that dich dich um, dichotomy of self-doubt versus confidence, like obviously that's such a fine balance. It's almost like that Taoist idea of like the two opposing forces create the most beneficial um, impact for you because like you fall too far on the confidence side and you become so arrogant that you don't train or that you just think that this could be going to be fine. And that self-doubt is actually such a useful thing because it's, it's telling you things that you wouldn't, here without it or you wouldn't know without it so you like you have to listen to it but when it becomes deafening all it does is dampens your confidence you're not going to go in there without that swagger that arrogance and especially in fighting as well like you've got to have that slight swagger like it's it's yeah. an aggressive sport like it's, it's not snooker it's something yeah. a bit more than that yeah. yeah so so like how do you stay in touch with am i on the self-doubt side or the kind of the confidence side do you how are you aware of that how am i what aware of it like are you are you watching for that or are you just kind of letting it happen i mean i try to i try to be confident on most days but obviously there's there's times where it's not the case but you try, I try to fake it till I make it kind of thing, even like just showing up to sparring against somebody who's way better than me. I still try to, you know, pretend like I'm cool and pretend like I'm better, stronger, faster, you know, try to focus on, on all the things that I do well, try to just keep my mind on those things instead of like magnifying the things that I feel like are holes in my training or in my prep and just lie to myself okay. a little bit. So yeah, let's get into the nitty gritty with it then a, a little bit. Um, you obviously, you went into strength sports and that was a huge part of your life. Um, that requires such like high arousal control to get yourself into that right state. And again, like too far can be catastrophic because you just lose technique, but it requires a lot of like a high arousal state. How do you prep for that? Like how do you get yourself in that place? I think practice more than anything. Like I my training style for the majority of my career in lifting was very, very specific to what's being tested in a competition. So most of my training was spent at an RP 10. So I was very comfortable getting there and being uncomfortable under really, really heavy weight that can crush you because every session would be a heavy day for me. Every session I would go, and I'm not saying that this is the best way to train. I was just in such a rush to get stronger. And I had so much, uh, I had so much pressure just to like grow my business, make a name for myself, start making money, all that, that I just felt like I, that's, that's kind of what I needed to do at that time. So I feel comfortable just because of how much practice I've had at those high levels of arousal, just continuously putting myself under a heavy bar. And then how does that differ to getting in the ring oh my god it's a completely different thing um i've never felt a true adrenaline dump like the one that you feel in the first 10 to 30 seconds of a fight spar or an actual fight um and I've, that's something that i've spoken to my sports psychologist about as well it's like 
that adrenaline dump is something that you can't really control. And the more you try to control it, the worse that it is. It's almost like you just got to let it happen. You just got to let that, let that out and, and, and not pay too much attention to it. Cause that's when it starts freaking you out. It's like when you're in a, in a tight space, you know, it's, you're not, maybe there's lower oxygen that you're used to, but you're not going to die of asphyxiation, right? Unless you start thinking about it. And that's what makes you panic. Similar to being caught in a wave in the ocean, right? Like sometimes they say, just, you just got to let it ride. You can't like start trying to fight it. It's the same thing in a ring. Like you just got to kind of let it pass and, and then just focus on other things, focus on your breathing, focus on your footwork, focus on your opponent, see what they're doing and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the main difference between, between those two things is that you have a person in front of you that is thinking that has a brain that has two hands that has a corner that's telling them, that's telling them what to do. And not only do you have to think about what your actions are going to be against, against that person, but you also have to think about what their actions are going to be against your actions. So it's like this, like very complex chessboard essentially that gets increasingly harder to navigate because every second you spend in the ring, your amount, the amount of oxygen that goes to your brain goes down. Mm-hmm. So it becomes really, really hard to think even when you're inside of the ring. Um, and then the other thing is like, you're, you're, like I said, you're against someone else that's pressuring you to fight their fight. Whereas a barbell is just there on the floor. You either lift it or you don't. And the consequence is you either lift it or you don't. Right. It's either white lights or red lights here. It's like <laughs> lights out. That's the consequence. Yeah, yeah. Like you get put to sleep. <laughs> Um, so there's, there's a lot more at stake, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There is. And even if, yeah. And even if like logically, you know, okay, I'll get punched a bit and it's like, it's not going to be the end of the world. There's something about it. That's like, you're just in there and there's that it just evolutionarily you're structured for that fight. And it's like a proper fight to the death mode. But it might be the end of it might be the end. Yeah. Like it's, you're always, you're always one really bad punch away from being fucked. Okay. So how really? do you, how do you deal with that then? Um, I really don't care. Um, I, I'm here for a good ride, not a long ride. If there's something that I enjoy doing, then I'm going to do it. I'm not the type of person that avoids things because of fear of what's going to happen. The what if, you know, boxing sports in general, make me feel alive. It's like what gives me the most, what makes me feel that I have the most purpose. It fills me with happiness every single day that I get to train for it. I love competing and I've been loving this journey. So for me, it's like, I mean, it would definitely, it would suck if like something really bad happens, if I can't talk or if I'm in a coma or something like that, that sucks. But, but it's a, I think it's a risk that I'm, I'm willing to take like any other kind of high danger situations that I've put myself in. Who taught you that? Or was there someone that like had that mentality around you? No, actually my family is the complete opposite. Like there's so uh, risk averse. I don't know. I don't think that anybody in my family really taught me that it's something that I've just always kind of, I've always been the type of person that seeks that kind of adrenaline rush that seek that seeks out those like adventures and, and challenges. That's kind of what makes me feel alive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's fascinating. The only thing that I can kind of relate it to myself is when I go like backcountry skiing. So this is like way away from resorts and loads of people with like, what about avalanches? What about falling off cliffs? What about all these things? And like, for me, obviously I try and minimize the risk as much as I can, but at the end of the day, I'm going skiing like, and I'm, I'll, I'll avoid terrain that's, that's scary and I'll, I won't do stupid and reckless things, but like, like there's that thing in there that's like, this is me and this is exactly. drive what is it that drives you um 
I just want to gather as many fun, challenging experiences as I can in my lifetime. You know, I don't want to just be a blob through life and just nine to five and, and not feel extremes and not feel fear and not feel really cold or really hot or really uncomfortable. Like I think all of those experiences and, and emotions are, are what makes us human and what makes us feel alive. So I don't want to avoid any of them. Yeah. So here's what, have you always been that way? Has that always been in there or has there been a turning point? Yeah, no, I've, I feel like I've, I've always been that way. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. You found, you found you, you found what drives you and that's yeah. like new experience and novelty. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And that applies not just in training, but I suppose business relationships, like outside everything yeah life in general yeah and that's why it's so important like self-knowledge is always forming the foundation of our mentality and it's like once you know that then you can go okay novelty openness new experiences is something that drives me whereas like if you're not driven by that if you're driven by consistency and predictability then it'd be crazy to try and go after your style of living yeah of course and and it's ultimately a matter of finding what makes you feel happy and fulfilled, right? Like mm. it's not a matter of like Im imitating someone else's lifestyle or someone else's viewpoints on life. It's just a matter of finding what makes you feel more like you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you, sorry. Also being open, also being open to trying new things so that you can figure out what you like. Right. And I think that's what most people very rarely do. They don't go through, I like to call it discovery process. It's like mm. you have to you have to put yourself out there. You have to try to even if it's artificial, you have to create some sort of curiosity for something and you have to put yourself out there and you have to go through a period of being uncomfortable and then you can get to your own conclusion. Did I like it? Did I not like it? Did it make me feel fulfilled? Did it not? You know, and that's kind of how you go to those conclusions. But if you but most people I think are, are even afraid of, of going through those discovery periods and trying to find different things that they might be interested in or that they might enjoy doing. And they just stay in their comfortable kind of little environment and never, never really discover what they want to do. What was the discovery period like going into boxing? Um, Honestly, it was more accidental. It was driven by the lockdown. Mm -hmm. uh, all the competitions were canceled for powerlifting. And I, it had been maybe five or six years that I hadn't taken a real break from heavy lifting just because I was doing competition after competition. So I thought it was kind of the perfect excuse to put powerlifting on the backseat and, and mainly focus on my health because it's something that I'd been neglecting. been doing powerlifting, no conditioning for years, just being overly... Mm -hmm. uh, as, a specialist in that. So I just wanted to fall in love with fitness again and, and um, take care of my, of my health a bit more. So that's kind of what drove me to start doing more conditioning pieces. I bought a heavy bag just for like the exercise and, you know, just to try something new. And yeah, next thing, you know, I was training once a week boxing, then two, three, four, and now it's my full-time job. Did you ever lose the love for powerlifting? Yeah. What's that like? Uh, Cause obviously you've built so much of your personality around it and like, so not personality, but like your life, your, it becomes that. And that's what you kind of, you know, so what's that like losing that love? Man, if I'm being completely honest with you, I never really loved powerlifting. Um, I kind of fell into that through Olympic weightlifting. I was in grad school at the time and I wasn't able to to train as intensely as I needed to in order to continue making progress in weightlifting because it requires you to train twice a day. You have to train with a coach or with a team. So you get like, you know, in the mood and the amount of focus that you need to do snatch and clean and jerk every single day is like much, much higher. And after a day of being of sitting down for eight hours in class and doing four hours of research after last thing you want to do is have to focus on a very specific high risk movement. So I started doing powerlifting just kind of to, 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 to take a break from weightlifting, but at the same time, do something that was going to help me in weightlifting so the way I saw it was like, okay, I'm just going to take the next 
two years to just build my raw strength, to build my squat, build my deadlift, and then get back to weightlifting. And I just discovered that had an, like a very, I was aware, I was very well suited for powerlifting. I was making progress like insanely fast. I was picking up the movements just so fast that the first time that I did a sumo deadlift, I did like 315. And so I kind of felt like it was, uh, like it would have been silly of me not to, not to pursue it just out of my own curiosity to see how strong I could get. And then one thing led to the other, you know, I started getting really strong and I started getting eyes on me. Then I built a business that was based on that, but I was never like, I never really enjoyed training powerlifting or even competing. Why was that? It was, um, I first, I didn't feel like it allowed me to like express my athleticism at all. You know, it was just two basic movements or three basic movements, squat, bench, deadlift. I didn't feel like it required a lot of skill to do them once you've already learned them. Um, that's one of them. And the monotony of them mm-hmm. is just the same thing over and over and over and over again. Like it got to a point after you get past those beginner gains that you make all the progress in like a year and a half or two years. And then it starts getting really difficult. I literally just felt like I was going to the gym and I was just banging my head against the concrete wall. You know, I'd be like failed attempt after failed attempt after failed attempt after failed attempt. And then maybe at some point during the year, maybe you make a five pound PR or two and a half pound PR and they're more rare and far few in between the longer that you're in it. And it's just such a frustrating and, and monotonous sport. I recently uh, read a book called chop wood, carry water. Mm. And the premise of the book was chop wood, carry water, like making sure that you uh, understand that anything, anything that you want to succeed in requires a certain amount of mundane tasks that you just kind of have to, get through and if there's one thing that powerlifting taught me was falling in love with the mundane like at least like finding a way to lie to yourself about or finding a way to make those boring tasks interesting in some way so you can keep going but it's just kind of part of the process now I just honestly I consider myself a master of the mundane because of powerlifting, because I had to, I had to do that quote unquote, just for the sake of my business, obviously. Um, but because I had to stick with it for so long and had to do this very repetitive, monotonous sport, I feel like I can do anything. You know, I've done the most boring one of them all. Yeah. Like I get what you mean. Cause it, with, with Ollie lifting, well, no, I don't get what you mean. Cause I'm nowhere near the power, the, the lifter that you were, um, but, or are, but like, I only lifted for three years straight and squatting, clean jerk, front squat, back squat, overhead press a bit, like snatch. Like it was like, man, this is killing me. And I, I just about squeaked through three years of it. And I got like, okay, like I was pretty good, but not, not great. I was never going to be 25 times world record holder. So what was driving you at that point? Cause obviously you could have just quit. Could I have, I don't know. Um, I don't feel like I could have, honestly, like, like I said, I had a responsibility at that point with, with everybody that is a part of hybrid, you know, my brand was entirely at that point was entirely based on my likeness and the exposure that I could get through competing. So I, I felt like I had the responsibility to keep going just to keep my business afloat, you know, and I was just kind of a sacrifice that I had to make at that point in time, um, that cost me my health, (laughs) but you know, it's just what I had to do. Yeah. When we really dig into these conversations with people who get to your level of performance, we always find there's like a deeper purpose and a connection to something bigger than themselves. That seems like it was the hybrid community. Yeah. I mean, I understood that, that my, like just the amount of exposure and reach that I could get through powerlifting was going to allow me to build a platform to then do bigger things. You know, for me, I think that my quote unquote purpose in life has always been to provide value to other people. Like mm-hmm. 
you know, encourage them to be better in some way. Um, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in the future, but, and, and I'm sure that as I evolve and, and my knowledge evolves and what I'm doing evolves, it'll constantly be changing. But for now, it's about providing value, educating people, teaching seminars, um, equipping people with programs, workout programs that can change their life for the better, get them healthier, fitter, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I understood that that was just part of what I needed to do to build that platform of exposure, essentially. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free. You just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrx.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Before I forget, I want to get back into the weeds a little bit and talk about like pre let's start with pre-lift routines did you develop any strategies that's like okay i'm going up to bench going up to deadlift like whatever like this is my pre-lift routine um no i'm the i'm the least organized successful person that you'll ever meet like i'm not i'm not like a routine based person i'm not you know, my notebooks aren't like full of highlights and, and sticky notes. I don't have like a schedule that I adhere to. Um, I always leave everything to last minute. I'm a procrastinator. Sometimes I'm really lazy. You know, I just kind of like do things as they come and it's worked for me. So no, I don't have any pre-lifting routines really. Sweet. And I'm guessing the same for like pre-competition. It's always, always different. Uh, in pre-competition, I honestly just do whatever I, I usually do on a regular day-to-day basis. So the day before a competition, after I've weighed in, obviously, I eat the same things that I've always eaten. I have one or two beers because that's what I always do. Mm-hmm. Um, I hang out with my friends because that's what I always do. Usually go out to do something to clear my mind. I feel like there, you know, I've, I've also gone the other way or like all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum where I take it way too seriously. You know, I, I'm like, okay, I'm a professional athlete now, you know, no more beer, no more socializing before a meet. Like I got to put my professional hat on and I'm going to get a track suit and it's going to, and I feel like that puts, I've felt personally, at least that that puts way too much pressure on me for no reason. You know, I'd rather just like treat it as another heavy lifting day, another max out day in front of an audience. And that just eliminates a lot of the, the external pressure for me. So I just try to, I just try to roll into the competition same way as I would roll to any day of training. Yeah. It's worth pointing this out. What kind of things happened to your performance when you took things like really seriously and it's like, right, I've got to nail everything and like make sure I'm a professional. Dude. I, um, the one time that I did that, I had the worst panic attack right before a competition like it was absolutely terrifying. Um, yeah, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to lift. I was literally shaking in the warm up room just with a massive panic attack. I had to hide it from everybody, obviously. Um, and then I bombed out. Yeah. So that excess of structure. Yeah. Huh? That excess of structure, it like it creates too much rigidity. Too much rigidity. And, and I put way too much pressure on myself. Yeah. For no reason. Yeah. Um, to kind of sidestep a little bit, did you ever, or have you ever dabbled in visualization, um, in, in those kind of tools? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, all the time in, in Olympic weightlifting all the time, I would find myself daydreaming about the movement all day long in powerlifting, not so much, just maybe a little bit in sumo, cause it's the one that requires the most kind of technicality and in boxing a lot. Like I do throughout the day, I like imagine different situations. Like how would I respond? I imagine like jabs coming at me. How am I going to slip? How am I going to counter? Definitely. Uh, and then not only cause I, I think of that as more positive visualization, but also negative visualization of like things not going your way and, 
and trying to think about how you're going to react to negative uh, scenarios. So, cause that's, that was something that happened to me when that competition, when I had the panic attack and I bombed or I failed my first squad, I, that has never, had never happened to me before failing a squad in a competition. And it was, it came such a surprise for me that it just completely took me out of my game. So I think that and that was something that I worked on with my sports psychologist was preparing yourself for less desirable outcomes. How are you going to react when you are fighting, you know, when you miss an attempt in squat or miss, miss your, your opening deadlift at a weight that you've done for five or eight reps? You know, how is that going to, is that going to, is that going to distract you or is that going to drive you to do better? You know, are you going to like, cry scream like what is it that you're gonna do and like i think practicing that scenario putting yourself really putting yourself in that situation mentally um is 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 important because a lot of people of even avoid thinking about negative outcomes they're always thinking about oh you have to be an optimist you have to think about best possible scenario but that is not the reality of life you know not things not always go according to your plan in fact most times they don't so it's not about being a pessimist. It's about being a realist mm. and just knowing that shit's not always going to work out the way that you're thinking it's going to work out. And you have to build that kind of mental resiliency to, to those situations and, and figure out how you're going to, how you're going to deal and overcome. Yeah. There's a book, um, ultra realist, and it's all about becoming an ultra realist. And it's like, you're only actually, have I got it right? Um, what is it? Oh, sorry. In the, comeback quote, the comeback quotient by uh, Matt Fitzgerald. We actually had him on the podcast, so I should have really got that right. But he talks about being an ultra realist. And it's something that we talk about in our, um, in our coaching the whole time. It's like the athlete who does the best is going to be the athlete who embraces, obviously all other things equal, the one who has the most accurate representation of reality possible. And that includes shit happening. And it includes things going really well and everything in between. Um, when shit does happen, what's your what's your response? Depends on the situation, obviously. But yeah. after that happened, after that bomb out at that meet, and after several sessions with my sports psychologist, I came on to the next meet and I missed my first squad. And instead of being like, you know, completely taken out of my 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 focus zone, it was just kind of like. Oh yeah, I don't care. I went back to the to the warm up room, and I remember Hayden, my partner, was there, who was coaching me at that time. He was like, "Are you okay? You know, it's it's nothing." Like, and I'm like, "No, Hayden, I got it. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just a missed squat attempt. I misgrooved it. I know it's there. You know, I'm strong enough. I just have to go a little bit lower. I just have to hold. You know, breathe a little bit deeper. I'm gonna be fine." And I just dealt with it with like full objectivity and like calmness, and came back for the second and third attempt and meet them. Yeah. Yeah, because when you've visualized stuff going wrong to begin with, then you've um, it's not the first time you're dealing with something going wrong. You've dealt with it hundreds of times before, and your mind's like, okay, now I know the process to follow. You're not figuring it out the first time. Exactly, and it also doesn't take you by surprise because if you're not even thinking about that as an as a, a possible thing that can happen, then when it happens, you're like, wait, what? I wasn't. I thought that this meet, I was going to go nine for nine and I wasn't going to miss any attempts or I thought I was going to come to this fight and, and not be dropped at all, you know, mm -hmm. and then fucking you're in the fight and you get dropped in the first, second round. And what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What have been the most useful things that your sports psychologist has taught you? Well, um, I think it's to let go of your own personal expectations and going into things thinking at least that you have nothing to lose. That's been like my biggest lesson so far. Yeah. That's like when you, it's, I think it's very easy to, to see that and go, yeah, that makes sense. Like I, I see that, like you've got to act so there's nothing to lose. How How'd you get to that point? Um, practice, mm -hmm. just practice, practice and, and being and 
being in those in those situations as as often as possible really so it's kind of an exposure therapy thing you're putting yourself in those positions where you have got something to lose gradually exposing yourself to more and more risk and then over time you become not immune to it but used to it exactly okay nice um there's something that you spoke about right at the beginning that i wanted to come back to um and that was your mum talking about like the urge to do something or talking about sports and like doing something more quote unquote feminine and the idea that powerlifting comes with this idea of masculinity that is the kind of the things that we associate with it first and then you've also linked in this idea of like individuality and going for what truly resonates with you um as a, as a kind of at your personal level how do you reconcile those 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 things um I'm not sure how to answer that question what is uh can you reframe it yeah sure so like obviously there's this external pressure from from others to conform this certain way and to do this is what to do what's traditionally described as masculine or feminine or like i know they're clunky terms and they're essentially yeah. meaningless in this world um not meaningless in this world meaningless in this conversation that we're having right now um how do you deal with the pressure of other people's expectations of okay. femininity um well for a for a long time i try to appeal to those expectations and those standards um you know and I think that I think that any any female athlete, especially female athletes who participate in more masked, quote unquote, masculine sports, deal with that. You know, it's like the the obviously all of the the commentary that that surrounds ma females in more masculine sports. It's easy to it's easy to to let those comments affect you and kind of change the direction that you, you that you genuinely and authentically want to move into i know that for me personally you know my especially when i was lifting weights my mom really didn't understand it like if it wasn't because of the fact that i was able to to uh benefit financially from it i don't think that she would have really approved of it at all just that she understood that i made a career from it and a brand from it but I mean, I, I did deal with a lot of, with just a lot of uh, external bullying, if you may, from people that I know, obviously friends, family, and also obviously people online that were heavily criticizing the way that I looked, whether it's because I was too muscular or the way that I dressed or the way that I acted. Um, and, you know, it's easy to say, I think that a lot of people say, a lot of people that are in the public, I like saying that it doesn't really affect them, but in the end of the day, we're all human and it, it really does, you know, it, it does affect you to a certain extent. And sometimes we even let it get to us to the point of, of that it changes our course or it changes the way that we genuinely want to act. But I think throughout the years, I just realized that, um, and, and I think thanks to social media, also, you're able to connect with other people that are maybe going through similar struggles and you, you, you find that you're not the only one going through whatever it is that you're going through. And that's, this is actually one of the central topics in the next book that I'm writing. It's called the female athlete paradox. And it's basically that it's that conflict of identity that female athletes have within themselves, where it's like, they have to, um, negotiate their athleticism and their femininity at the same time and it seems like they're 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 a binary you know it, it to people it seems like they don't those two characteristics can't live in the same person because they seem like they're in opposite ends of the spectrum so it's actually really hard from an identity standpoint for for female athletes and it has been hard for me as well just to figure out that balance of wanting to be athletic which are qualities that are often associated with being more masculine like being assertive and being aggressive and and being 
sharp and fast and I don't know. And then your femininity, which is being more nurturing, sensual, you know, desired, whatever that is. Um, so for me, I mean, how do I reconcile that? It's just through, again, connecting with, with like-minded individuals, learning more about it, that it's an actual psychological thing that happens to female athletes. It's not, um, it, it's not just us being a victim to society or being a victim to uh, the media or whatever. It's actually something psychological that happens to us because of the ways that human beings like to categorize and organize things in their head, you know? So that's been, that's been huge for me. And then just like, I don't think that there's a right or wrong way of dealing with it. You know, some girls lean a lot into their femininity to deal with it kind of to compensate for them not being too feminine, maybe on the field or on inside the ring or whatever that might be on the platform. They like overly compensate by being feminine. Some girls don't like to do that. And that's also totally fine. Some girls like to actually lean into their masculine side. Some girls maybe like to do a little bit of both and whatever it is that they decide to do, it's totally fine. It's just about what makes you feel comfortable. At least for me, there's, you know, I spent many years. I wasn't even looking for what made me comfortable, but I was looking for what I thought would make me, make me comfortable in the public eye, you know? So a couple of years ago, I started posting more like risque photos on my social media because I thought that gaining that kind of social appeal from my audience was going to make me in turn feel more confident. And it actually was the opposite for me. You know, I felt extremely objectified by my audience. I felt like it was totally out of character. Like after that, this is after a couple of years of posting these pictures. You know, it was totally not me. It was, it's out of character. I, it's not something that I, that, that really expresses my confidence because I'm not the most confident when I'm wearing those clothes, when I'm wearing a ton of makeup, when I'm wearing barely any clothes, mm. you know, that's a false representation of my character and, and how I feel and when I feel empowered and confident. So, but I had to go through that in order to, to discover or to find that out about myself. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I went all over the place with that answer, but I hope that I answered your question. Yeah, you absolutely did. And far more besides too. That was like, that was really, really useful for obviously like me having this conversation, but the people who listen to this, like there'll be so many people who are in a similar situation who spend time, like family events, sit down and you have the conversation about the way you look and you kind of all the actions that you're performing and that kind of judgment that goes alongside it um social media is obviously uh, like getting to bigger competitions you see it more and more and more and more um so for you to speak so openly about that is such an important thing to do so thank you for that um to kind of wrap up i'd like to ask two questions at the end of these these podcasts um, actually, before I, before I do that, what would you say to someone who is in that kind of situation where we, that we just described, where they're kind of, they're feeling like there's pressure from the outside world to conform to a certain idea of femininity or athleticism or, or whatever? Um, I think to say that that you just shouldn't care about what people think is is not useful advice because we're always going to care about what people think it's in our nature right like we as humans we want to belong we want to be part of a community we want to be liked and accepted and in order to be a functional functioning member of society you actually have to care about what people think right like you have to um, that doesn't mean that you have to completely ignore your internal identity feelings. You have to let that guide you. But at the same time, you should be taking into account certain things about the people that you hang out around to mold yourself into a person that fits into the group that you want to fit in, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is the first time that I explained this like this. It's actually really interesting. I'm going to write it down after I'm done. No, that's, that's really great. Like social, social pressures are sometimes social pressures for a reason. Like traditions can sometimes be traditions for a reason. And they kind of, they stuck around unintentionally because they served a purpose. So if they stopped, if, if there's no purpose there, they would have been dismissed thousands of years ago, even charitably and societally. You, you can't be just completely socially unaware. You can't just go around life doing whatever it is that you want to do. You know, you have to make certain concessions in order to be part of, of a group of people, yes. right? Like you, you absolutely have to take into account some level of feedback that you're getting in order to mold yourself into the, the obviously a version that mainly takes into account your authenticity and your identity as a person, but that also kind of fits in with, the way that you should behave in a society, I think. Yeah, exactly. Ex- exactly right. Because society, if they're being honest with themselves, know more than you do. And thousands of years of societal development knows more than you do. So to kind of, to think that you know more than that is arrogant beyond belief, but also like you've got to have the courage to stand up for what you truly believe. Like when you ask yourself, when you're not just going along with the crowd and you're doing what is truly right, you get that internal compass right that you kind of when you do something and i'm going to guess that this is kind of how it felt when you're kind of posting uh to instagram in the way that you kind of spoke about before you kind of get that feeling of like this is inconsistent with who i really am this is inauthentic exactly exactly so there's that and then there's just not feeling pressured to not feeling pressured to to do what everybody else is doing like you don't in order to feel confident, like I said, confidence looks different for different people. You know, some people are feel the most conf- confident when they're wearing a, a, a suit and tie. You know, some people feel the most confident when they're wearing a tracksuit or joggers. And that's totally fine. Like you don't have to, in order to portray confidence, you don't have to strip down naked. You know, that's, I think for women, like that's a really big one. Cause I think that it's so funny when, whenever a girl does like one of these photo shoots, I read through the comments of even other people, people are like, Oh, how are you? You know, I wish I could do those photo shoots. I wish I could be this confident, this comfortable with my body. It's like, well, you can be this confident and this comfortable with your body. You don't have to show it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Like where, where did that become a thing? You know, it's fine to be modest. It's fine to reserve your nudity for yourself and your partner or whoever it is that you want to show it. You don't have to, that's not a, it shouldn't be synonymous with, with empowerment or confidence or even like self self-confidence or self-worth, whether or not you post these pictures on Instagram, like that's completely ridiculous. So not letting, not letting what other people do um, kind of define, define what your confidence is about yourself and just do what you, what you really feel comfortable doing whether however you want to dress that makes you feel beautiful and unique and authentic and in character with yourself, that's fine. Yeah. Perfect. Really perfect. So there's two questions to kind of wrap things up. What do you do for a, on a, on a consistent basis for your mental health or mental performance? Um, ignore my feelings. <laughs> We've got, we got... <laughs> but but really sometimes I do sometimes I feel sometimes I feel like um and in the past this has happened to me where I get way too introspective Mm. you know way too caught up in my own feelings and sometimes it's also not necessary sometimes you just gotta say Steph shut the fuck up whoever is like driving that right now just stop it put it aside you got better things to worry about right now you know, and I think, I think honestly, that's important. Like say that you're going through something mental. I have a fight next week. Like that needs to wait. Like you got to be able to also compartmentalize whatever is going on up in the good old noggin, put it aside and focus on whatever it is that you need to do. I think actually there's some truth in what I said initially. Um, besides that, I just take time for myself. Like whenever I feel like I'm, I'm burned out, uh, I actually make a point to have a lazy Sunday every Sunday. It's like my personal religious holiday 
where it's like a mainly a social cleanse. Like I take I take Sundays to not be around people because I'm so much of my job involves being around people in front of a camera, talking to people, interviewing, interviewing other people, being interviewed. So I like taking Sundays to like really not talk to anybody, just be by myself, be with, with my dog. Maybe we we'll go for a walk on the beach, like being in touch with nature, you know, grounding, walking, walking barefoot on the grass, just like completely decompressing. Um, and then if I need more than that, like if it's, it's, it's something that doesn't get solved with a lazy Sunday, then taking a, a, a few mental health days for myself where I just only do things that I want to do that make me, that bring me happiness. Like, I don't know, maybe going, visiting my nephews, maybe, um, driving my bike for a, a long drive up to the, the keys. Maybe it's sitting by myself, reading a book at a coffee shop, buying a new book, whatever it is, you know, anything that makes me feel happy that, that, um, allows me to recharge my batteries. Yeah. So, so important. And then this flows really nicely on from, uh, from what you just mentioned, what books have been most instrumental in your life? Um, as a recent, uh, most of Ryan Holiday's books, Mm-hmm. but specifically the obstacle is the way yeah just there somewhere around there there it's so good man like i've the obstacle is the way was kind of my introduction to stoicism and since then i've just been reading a lot of philosophy books i remember like there is a most of my life i mean I've, I've always been more into very straightforward practical mm. self growth books whether it's about business or mindset or um, networking, whatever it is, like I just want straight to the point, but I've found so much comfort in this like longer winded philosophy lessons and stories um, that apply to so much that allow you to like use it as an analogy for so many different things that happen in your life and give you such a uh, a bird's view, like a, a, a much more open perspective of, of what's happening and different ways to interpret certain situations in life. Yeah. Love it. Um, there's a previous guest in the podcast. We had actually William B. Irvin, um, and he wrote a book called the stoic challenge. And it's a really nice kind of, I feel like it's a deeper application of the stuff that Ryan holiday does. Um, so you might, might enjoy awesome. it. Yeah, I wrote it down. Cool. Uh, two book recommendations then. And, um, Finally, then, most importantly, where can people find out more about you? Where can they follow you on Instagram, find out more about hybrid, that kind of thing? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Steffi Cohen, and you can sign up for our programs at hybridperformancemethod.com. I'm Tom Foxley. Thank you for listening to the Limitless Athlete podcast. Following this episode, we will be releasing the debrief, a summary of the wisdom within the show and practical steps to applying it in order to enhance your own mindset. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so you can start growing the mindset of a limitless athlete. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review and some kind words are super helpful as well. Plus, you can do exactly the same on Spotify now. For further mindset training resources and tools, head to mindsetrx.com or head to Instagram and search for mindsetrx. That's mindsetrxd. Next week, I'll be talking to a Navy SEAL commander who has whittled down the key attributes behind success. 